Authors Over 50, Writing in Life's Sweetest Third. Authors Over 50's weekly podcast celebrates writers and their journeys to publication. Writing after 50 is a whole story on its own, so let's skip to Life's Sweetest Third and talk with authors about their journey from pen to publish. Welcome, I'm Julia Daly, your host, and I invite you to listen to interviews with writers who've achieved their goal of publishing a book just later in life. We've seen award lists for under 30 or under 40, but I've yet to see lists for those who've achieved a significant milestone of their own, launching a new career and publishing their first book after the age of 50. We will hear about these authors' inspirations, struggles, strategies, and the smell of that first book. These writers' journeys inspire me because I'm one of them. My guest today is an award-winning author and retired psychotherapist. When she and her family moved to Bangkok, Thailand for three years in 2005, she met her spiritual teacher, an encounter that led her to write her debut memoir, Finding Venerable Mother, A Daughter's Spiritual Quest to Thailand. It was a number one bestseller in spirituality on Amazon and is now available in audiobook form. She currently hosts a weekly program called Casual Buddhism. Welcome to Authors Over 50, Cindy Rassico. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Cindy, our opening question on Authors Over 50 is always, what took you so long to write your first book? Well, my answer is I would reframe the question. I would say it did not take me so long. I would say rather I wrote it when I was ready. And that feeling came about when I was uh, 69. I was actually going through a separation at the time and eventual divorce from my former husband of 33 years who we are still good friends, I'm happy to say. And actually, it was a really good thing for me to be doing because I had a goal. I was working with a developmental editor, Brooke Warner, who's the head of She Writes Press, the hybrid press. And also, the story itself really stemmed from the time we spent in Thailand, which was 2005 to 2008. I'd always wanted to write a book, but there was a real story in this one that I felt needed to be told. Well, once you wrote this book, it sounds like you chose a hybrid. She writes press. Is that correct? Or did you search yes. for an agent? Or I, You know, I had been working with Brooke. I really liked her. We'd gotten the book to the place where we thought it was ready. And I liked She Writes Press. It's a hybrid feminist press. And my story deals with Venerable Dhammananda Piccani, who is the first fully ordained Theravada nun in Thailand, which meant like at the time she became a Buddhist nun, there was 300,000 male monks and no women. So she was both a feminist and uh, she was, she always says, I'm a Buddhist first and a feminist second. So the feminist, the, that core is very strong in me. Well, She Writes Press is certainly so well-respected in the industry, and they are certainly known for memoir and creating yes. such a strong community of women writers. 
It is a great community. I have some dear friends. And we were just talking about Leslie, who wrote Threads of Awakening about the Tibetan Tonga, which is a Tonga is a, a, a painting or a piece of fabric in the Tibetan tradition, which depicts a Buddhist deity. This is the medicine Buddha behind me, the blue medicine Buddha. It's very fascinating. And I did interview Leslie and that art form is such a beautiful, beautiful work. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the most challenging part of your artistic process? Well, since I'm in the middle of editing my second book, I would say editing. <laughs> the writing can be challenging seeing a blank page, but when it comes, it's fairly smooth for me. I also have a practice of writing every day from about 5.30 to 8 in the morning. So um, that has never been difficult for me to get a, a ritual going. Um, but the rewrites sometimes can be challenging because I've already written what I think is a pearl of wisdom. And um, it's not turning out to be quite working. So I have to kind of rework it. And it's a reshaping and a rethinking that is different from the initial creative process because initially I'm just putting out there what I think is the story and reshaping it is, I would say, more of a stylistic or technical activity. I agree. You know, I think when we get it on paper, we think we're finished and they say, Writing is rewriting, and I think we have to do it over and over again. So sometimes we hate to leave things on the cutting room floor, but it's necessary to move right, the right. story forward. <laughs> right. <laughs> you mentioned writing a second book. How did writing your first book change your process of writing, or did it? Uh, writing my second book didn't really change my process of writing it. Um, but writing my second book is a long-held dream I've had. I met Venerable Dhammananda, or Luang Mei, as she's called Venerable Mother in Thai, in 2005. And so I've known her for 18 years. And almost as soon as, early on when I met her, within the first year, I felt I need to write a book about her. I need to introduce Western women to this courageous woman who has stepped forward in the way that she did. And so what that's an interesting question because I intended to write the second book when I wrote the memoir. But what I the second book is a story about her life and her Buddhist teachings. But the first book, it turned out, following my own process, was I needed to tell my story of meeting her and our relationship. And the second book has evolved out of that. That sounds like a wonderful continuation of your, your journey there. It, it definitely is. You know, so many of us writers just want to write. We don't want to tout ourselves or, or get involved in publicity, but we must. Even the big five publishing houses are requiring their writers to get out there and, and uh, do their own publicity. And that's a challenge for many of us. Have you found any publicity that's worked or maybe that hasn't worked for you? I would say what has worked for me is finding the people who are right for me. 
And that has been a growth process. I think when I first started, of course, I was open to more, a broader spectrum of ideas, people, styles, because I didn't know much. What publicity have you found that worked or didn't work? Yeah, um, I, it took me probably four or five years to find a kind of a Buddhist community of publishers and editors. And this is a much, uh, I wouldn't say, I'd say it's a closer fit to the work that I'm trying to do. And that took me time just to find the right people. Whether or not that makes a difference in terms of the output, I'm not sure, but I'm happier knowing that people are familiar with Buddhist publications, uh, magazines, the genre in that sense. So that works, that works well for me right now. I have a, a Buddhist editor, a woman who's been editing books for 25 years in the Buddhist genre. And I have a publicist that I picked out who I haven't worked with yet, but he's also been working with some Buddhist authors. Well, because you were a psychotherapist, you might have done a lot of searches in your life. But I wonder, as a Western woman going to Thailand, what attracted you to the Buddhist religion? That is a great question. What attracted me was more, is more, my teacher. When I met her, I had quite a profound experience. I was living as an expat in Thailand at the time. I was a little untethered because we left our home. I left my job, left our family. And I was searching for something meaningful to do. And I went to a conference and it was on women in developing countries. One of the afternoon workshops was called Faith, Feminism, and the Power of Love. And the title struck me because I've never heard faith and politics in one sentence, to be honest. And so I went and I heard the various speakers from around the world. And there was a very profound moment when I heard my teacher speak. And a specific what she says was said was, we cannot solve anything with anger. Anger doesn't lead us anywhere. It is much harder to practice loving kindness and compassion. That is the goal of Buddhism. So that kind of went through me like a electric light, like lightning or what have you, a bolt of energy. And I just felt inspired. Um, first of all, she's very quiet in her manner and her delivery. She's a tall Thai woman, 5'9". And um, again, the juxtaposition of the calm with, <laughs> with talking about anger was really powerful for me. And she, I was drawn to her as a person and her, the core of her work and her life, in a sense. And then, of course, I became more interested in Buddhism through her teaching. I think it's so interesting when we find people that we're drawn to and who become our mentors. And that's one reason for this podcast is that so many of you authors are inspirational to other writers especially those over 50. So I'm happy to, to um, present all of you and, and let you become mentors to others. 
Oh, that's that's very beautiful. Thank you. Cindy, why don't you tell us a little bit about the passages you've brought to share today and then read from your work so we can hear your tone and voice. Okay, well, the passage that I have chosen is uh, about alms round. And alms round is a tradition. You've probably seen pictures of uh, male monks in line in the early morning with their alms bowl, often in orange robes, saffron robes from Southeast Asia. Uh, maybe a little less common to see women. And the ritual is basically kind of a, an exchange. Thai people believe Thai people believe they gain merit or good karma, if you will, from doing acts of kindness. And the women get up at like 5.30 or earlier to cook fresh rice and food and to prepare fresh food for the monks and nuns as they come around. So it's a kind of a beautiful ritual and something that I did early on that really moved me. So I'll read a little bit about that. Uh, this was probably the very first time I went to the temple, actually, in uh, October of 2005. What an odd sight we make, I thought. Three nuns, three matches, which is a different type of nun, and two farang, that is foreigners, coiling like a long snake down a side street. I felt vulnerable, as if I were missing an essential part of my clothing, a skirt you can see through without a slip. The procession stopped before a family waiting in front of their house. A mother held a squirming young daughter in her arms. An older woman, possibly the child's grandmother, was there too. They looked calmly into Domin Venerable Dominanda's eyes as if greeting a trusted friend. No words were spoken. The mother placed her daughter at Dominanda's feet. She picked up a pot and carefully doled out two scoops of warm rice the, into each nun's bowl. The older woman collected small plastic bags filled with vegetables and clear broth, broth sitting on a nearby table. She placed one bag on the lid of each alms bowl. The nuns turned around and passed the bags back to us. A human receiving line. We scooped up the bags of food and handed them to a woman who walked alongside us, pushing a wooden handcart to carry the food back to the monastery. The, the cart began to fill up with water bottles, food, flowers, fruit, and sweet orange and pink Thai desserts. At the next house, an old woman stood holding a tin rice pot. Her face was brown and lined with wrinkles. Eyes closed, she raised her pot to her forehead. Her lips moved silently in prayer. She picked up a cone of white lotus blossoms carefully wrapped in green banana leaves and placed them on the lid of Dominanda's bowl. I remained behind the Dominanda while the nuns chanted their blessing. The words to the chant sounded different from what they had sung earlier. Dominanda leaned in close to me and whispered, she has cancer. I appreciated knowing something about people's per personal stories. Living in, a person living in a gated community with other expats, I hadn't yet experienced any 
connection with the Thai people other than my housekeeper, who wasn't even Thai, and my driver. Walking with Venerable Dhammananda was like entering a private world, discovering a Thailand that existed beyond the locked gates of a protected compound. Uh, we turned down a side street and Venerable Dhammananda called everyone in close. There was, uh, I could see a small white house with, with a family seated on the porch. A young man who Dhammananda told us was small for his age sat between his father and mother. He looked like a boy, but as I got closer, his face appeared older. His large head dwarfed his small body. I learned later that he was 35. As we gathered around him, I wondered if our group might be intimidating to him, but our presence didn't seem to bother him. Perhaps he'd seen foreigners walking in alms around before. He glanced up at Venerable Dhammananda, a look of wonder in his face. All eyes focused on this Thai man as we circled around him. Laboring for breath, his chest lifted and fell as he wheezed in and out. He pressed his palms together as his mother lifted a precious spoonful of rice into Venerable Dhammananda's bowl. Filled with tenderness, Dhammananda bent over to receive the offering. We paused, watching spellbound. A wave of compassion rose in my chest. My vision blurred as warm tears slid down my, my cheeks. I glanced at our line and saw other people were crying too. It was just a momentary flash. Buddhists, Christians, Jews, Thais, Americans, all standing together, connected by an invisible thread of caring. When my vision cleared, faces and colors came into focus. Red flowers appeared richer, Pink's, pink petals more vibrant. For the first time in Thailand, I didn't feel like a foreigner. Standing in the outdoor sanctuary, I was profoundly grateful to have found this gifted teacher who willingly accepted me, a stranger, into her community. A sense of calm flooded through me as I fell back into the procession and we headed back to the temple for breakfast. Wow. It sounds like you really did find a, a community there. What was the best money you ever spent as a writer? Going to Thailand, having the experience, and then being able to write about uh, what I what I saw, what I heard, what I felt. Have you been able to go back since you left? Yes, yes I go back. Every year I've gone back every year for the past 10 years. My hair is short because I received what's called temporary ordination in December, December 5th of this last year. Venerable Dhammananda was celebrating 20 years as a Buddhist nun, Bhikkhuni it's called in Thai language. And there was a special celebration for her. I honored, I ordained, took ordination to honor her as my teacher and on this momentous occasion. And you do temporary means, because people ask me this, that you take on the robes, you um, agree to take on the precepts, follow the precepts, which is kind of like the Ten Commandments, something like that. And you study Buddhist texts and wear the robes for just, but just a period of two weeks, and then you go back into lay life. So I'm not an ordained 
minister or anything like that. It, it's for personal experience because Venerable introduced monast uh, female monasticism into the Thai culture. She wanted women to have the opportunity to experience, well, what is this monastic life? Show me, teach me, let me experience it. And so she's done it now. She's offered temporary ordination two times a year, April 5th and December 5th, for about since 2009, however many years that is, and uh, reached a lot of women in that way. Is it difficult to practice that life here in the land of plenty? That is another great question. Yes, it is. And what's difficult for me, very good question, is there's a bit of a culture clash between Western and Eastern uh, Asian Buddhism. There's a big emphasis on the individual and individual psychology and what we might call mindfulness and awareness. Whereas in Asia, Buddhism is much more about community, reverence for the monks and the nuns. It's much less about I, me, my, mine, and much more about us. Well, that's something that we all should practice. Well, I'm learning along with everyone else. <laughs> Cindy, does your family support your career as a writer and as a Buddhist? Yes, they do. Um, my former husband was very supportive of me becoming ordained because I did it. I've done it twice. I did it in 2014 when we were still married. And um, basically, uh, now I've lived alone for five years, so I've had my own routine for writing. And of course, it's a luxury to be able to support oneself and write. And I'm privileged to be able to do that. So, And I, I still have their support, but I do live alone. Do you have to do a lot of research about this religion and about the life that you're attempting to live? And if so, do you do that in advance of your writing or do you do that as you go along? That's uh, an interesting question. With the second book, I had to do a lot of research back into the time after my teacher was ordained because she came back to Thailand. She had to go to Sri Lanka to be ordained because then and now they still don't allow monks to give ordination to women. That's how patriarchal the society is and uh, biased towards the male monks. So she came back and there was quite a bit of controversy. It was called the Dhammananda controversy or the Bhikkhuni female monastic debate. And uh, I've I found it was interesting. I found a thesis that was written by a woman who was one of her students because Venerable was a university professor for 27 years, married with three for 30 years and had three sons before she became ordained. And the woman wrote extensively about um, institutional denial of women's Buddhist uh, monastics in Thailand. That was very interesting. And yes, I spent a lot of time researching, going back into articles, seeing what people said at the time. It was fascinating. I'm sure that made your writing even richer. It gives a fuller picture, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Well, as always, our last interview question is, our writers over 50 are quite unique. Do you have advice for writers 50 and above? Oh, yes. Uh, speak your truth. Write your write your truth. Don't be afraid to pick up the pen and say what you really think and feel. Because every one of us has a story that needs to be heard. And that's what makes us so beautiful as human beings. We each have a different story to tell. So I encourage anyone over 50 to take up the pen and tell us your journey. Or if it's not a journey, write about something you love. Well, we appreciate your being here with us so much today because you can share your your journey and I can tell the peace and calmness that's within you. And I love that that you have a mentor and that you are a mentor. And we are happy now to say that you're one of our authors over 50. Oh, thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for joining us today. Please look for Authors Over 50 every Thursday when we will have conversations with accomplished debut novelists over the age of 50. Please subscribe and share with a friend. And check out my own publication journey after 50 at www.juliadaily, that's D-A-I-L-Y, like dailynewspaper.com. Until next time, keep reading and writing. And remember, it's never too late to fulfill a dream in life's sweetest third.